Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, this is the last week in our series called The Big God Story. All summer long, we have been telling the story of the Bible, starting from the very beginning and working our way through all the twists and turns and highlights of the story, trying to get every major turning point in there. And we have finally come to the end of the story. This is really exciting. This is great stuff. And there's a lot to cover, so we're gonna get started right away. If you got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the very last book of the Bible, actually the last two chapters of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22. And as you turn there, let me say a couple of things about the book of Revelation. Uh, One thing to begin with, it's actually Revelation, not Revelations. There's no S on the end. That's a common mistake that people make. But the book of Revelation is the book that we're actually reading right now in our Bible Savvy reading schedule. And if you have been following along this week, you know we're in the thick of the wild, weird acid trip that is this book. And I'm pretty sure by now some of you are confused. Now, I'm not going to be getting into the thick of all of the details of Revelation in this sermon, but I do want to offer you a little bit of help as you're reading along. A couple of things I'd recommend. First, I would recommend going to BibleProject.com and watching their two-part introduction video to the book of Revelation. It's really helpful. Second thing I'd recommend is actually picking up a commentary on the book of Revelation. Here's the one that we would recommend. It's the NIV application commentary by Craig Keener. Uh, It's a really solid, readable, practical book, and it approaches uh, the book of Revelation the same way we do here at Christ Community Church. That one is worth picking up. I'd also recommend picking up the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's not specifically about the book of Revelation, but it does cover a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about today in this message. And if you walk away from from this message with some questions, and I won't be surprised if you do. That book goes into great detail. It's really encouraging, really enriching, uh, well worth your time to pick it up. Because today, what I want to talk about are five things that will happen at the end of the big God story. So let's start reading in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Skip down to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Continue into chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of, the, of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Let's thank God for this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to identify five things that will happen at the end of the story. The first one is this, the return of Christ, the return of Christ. All throughout the series, we have been using this idea of shalom. It's this biblical idea of completeness, of wholeness, of harmony. It's the way things were meant to be. And it's the way things were at one time in the Garden of Eden. And the entire story of the Bible is how we get back to Shalom, how God brings Shalom back to his world. And the return of Christ is one of the key moments in bringing one of the four aspects of Shalom to the world. Let, let me read to you again, Revelation 21.3 said, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the restoration of God's presence, one of the key aspects of shalom. Right now, we experience God's presence in part through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But when Jesus returns, we will experience his presence in full. I wonder what that will be like. We don't know exactly what the return of Christ will be like, but I can tell you some of the things we do know. For one thing we know, the return of Christ will be physical. Jesus isn't going to come back to earth in some vague spiritual form, but in his body, just as his body ascended and was taken up into the heavenly realm, so too will he descend and stand on the earth. We also know that his return will be public. The, the first time that Jesus showed up, he kind of snuck in, you know. Uh, there was a little fanfare with the shepherds and stuff like that. But for 30 years, he just kind of flew under the radar. And then even after that, when he went public with his ministry, most people in the world didn't even know that he had been there. But that isn't going to be the case the second time. Revelation chapter one actually says, every eye will see him when he comes. I was reading this passage to my kids when we do our epic reading in the morning uh, a week or so ago when we read this passage. And they, they said, hang on a second. How does that actually work? I mean, they know that the world is round. So like if he comes back in one place, how are we all gonna see him? Start to brainstorm all sorts of ways. They're like, well, okay, well maybe he'll fly around the world a few times so everybody gets a glimpse of him and then he'll go to Jerusalem like a victory lap or something. Or, or maybe it's gonna be broadcast on TV or online somewhere or, or maybe he'll give us all a vision at the same time in our minds or he'll project it on the sky and they thought of all these ideas. The, the Bible doesn't actually tell us how we're all going to see him. And the Bible doesn't actually really care. What matters is that no one will miss it. They will know when it happens. 
we also know that the return of Christ will be a surprise. I find it so goofy when people get caught up in trying to predict when Jesus is going to come back. Because this is one of the things that he was absolutely clear on. He said none of us would be able to predict it. Listen to what he says. He says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know. You do not know what day your Lord will come. Nobody's going to expect it. Nobody's going to see it coming. If someone says to you, this is important. If someone says to you, I know when Jesus is coming back, do not listen to that person. At best, they are misunderstanding and mishandling God's word. At worst, they are lying to manipulate people. Do not trust that. But some of you, I know, are going to be saying, but, but this year, haven't you thought it at least once, like maybe this is the end? You know, we've got, we've got a pandemic and wildfires and hurricanes and explosions in cities and unrest in the streets and so much more. I mean, you guys remember murder hornets. That was this year. But that's the thing. Jesus actually told us that stuff like this would happen. And he specifically said, when you see this happen, don't assume that it's the end. This is what he said in Mark. He said, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. It's saying these, this isn't signs of this. And he elaborates. He says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. Now, when Jesus says these are the beginning of the birth pains, he's not saying. So when you see them coming, start panicking. I, I didn't realize this until my wife was pregnant with our first child, but women can actually have contractions well before, long time before, the baby is actually ready to be delivered. So what Jesus is saying, he's like, look, when you look around and you see all this stuff going on, don't go to the hospital, all right? It's just Braxton Hicks. Don't get worked up. When I was in grad school, I studied church history, and that meant that I was reading things from the early church and the Middle Ages and the Reformation and early Christianity in, in America and all the way up to the modern day. And as I read this, there were a lot of things that were different across those different eras, but one thing was the same in all of them. There were always people who looked at the plagues and the wars and the natural disasters of their day and said, I wonder if this is the end. There's there another thing that was really common to all of those eras. All of them were wrong. Jesus didn't come back in any of those eras. No one was able to predict when he would come back, when the world would end. I also know that in the first century, when the, the Jews in Israel, they had the Old Testament and all of the predictions of the Messiah when he would come the first time, they got it wrong. They misunderstood what was going on. They, they looked back after Jesus came and they could say, oh, okay, that's where the pieces fall together. But leading up to it, they misread the signs. I have a feeling something like that will be the case when Jesus returns. Jesus specifically told us not to try to predict his return. What he does tell us to do is to always be ready and always be eager for his return. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to see Jesus face to face for the first time? I can't tell you how many times I have thought about that moment. Like what it will be like to see Jesus with my own eyes. If I'm honest, I, I'm incredibly jealous of the disciples, of Peter and James and John, because they actually got to see him, to, to touch him, to hug him. I think about the, the, the time when John is at a meal and it says that he leaned back on Jesus' shoulder. I, I so want to do that. It, it's so strange. The, the, the person that we love the most, we don't even know what his face looks like. We don't know what the sound of his voice is like. We don't know what his laugh is like. 
Can you imagine the, the line that's going to form the first time people get to see Jesus? Like, I'm sure, you know, like we're all going to behave ourselves. I mean, we're going to see Jesus, but we're going to follow the rules. Like, no cutting. No, I, I was here. We're going to kind of rush in just, just so we can see him. What will it be like? I, I'm sure it will be completely overwhelming. I mean, John, his best friend in all the world, when he saw a vision of him in all of his glory, fell down on his face as though he were a dead man. But, but then G- Jesus picked him up, stood him on his feet and looked him in the eye. Can you imagine doing that? What, what will the expression on Jesus's face be when you see him for the first time? What will his eyes say? What will his smile communicate to you? C- can you imagine all of the fear and all of the shame and all of the sorrow washing away when you realize the one who made you And the one who knows everything about you looks on you with love and he treasures you and he's wiping every tear from your eyes. Won't that be incredible? Now, for some of you, you might think about that and it doesn't sound that exciting. And part of the reason is it actually kind of makes you nervous because when you see Jesus, you're not gonna be seeing someone that you've loved for a long time. You're going to be seeing someone you've avoided for a long time. Someone you have rejected again and again. Someone you refuse to bow your knee to. And so the prospect of seeing him in person is not a happy one. That actually leads us to the second thing that's going to happen at the end of the story. The righting of wrongs. The righting of wrongs. The traditional name for this is final judgment. This is when everyone will stand before God and give an account of what they've done in their life. This is when Jesus will declare his verdict over all of the nations in every culture of the world. All of the Babylons and Egypts and Romes of history, he will say, this is what was right, this was what was wrong. This is when he will finally punish the devil and his demons. All of the evil forces that have stood behind all of the suffering and injustice and sin in the world. And when most of us think about Judgment Day, it is not a happy thought. Although strangely enough, the Bible, when it talks about final judgment, it talks about it as if it were good news. There there are actually whole songs of worship in the Bible that are praising God for the fact that he will judge the world. Can you imagine that? So what about judgment is good news? When I was in junior high, I went on a trip with uh, my junior high youth group at my church. And we went up to a camp in Wisconsin and I I was put in a cabin with some other kids. And uh, there was a a group of boys in that cabin that decided they were going to pick on one of these kids in the cabin. And so they would make fun of him. They'd make fun of how he talked and the things he did. And they did all sorts of things to provoke him, to get a reaction. And when he reacted, they would, you know, make fun of him even more. It was just really, really awful. And I wish I could tell you that I was one of the people who stood up for him, that I said, no, this, this shouldn't happen. But truth was, I was scared. I didn't want them to start making fun of me. And so I just kind of kept it silent and kept it safe. But after a while, it was so much that this kid, he just couldn't handle it anymore. And he blew up. He just exploded. He was screaming and yelling and making so much noise. And in the middle of this fit, the door of our cabin opened up and one of the adult leaders walked through the door and the entire cabin fell silent because we knew that judgment was coming. Now, fortunately, we had a leader who was really perceptive. He was able to get to the bottom of things, figure out who was the victim and uh, who were the perpetrators, who were just kind of witnesses of the whole thing. And he said to those bullies, he said, this must stop now. Now, here's the question. If you were one of those kids in that cabin, 
would you think that it was good news or bad news that the leader showed up? See, this is a tricky question, isn't it? It all depends on which kid you are. For those bullies, it was bad news that the leader was there. I don't remember what their consequences were, but they got in trouble for what they did. But for the kid who was being picked on, it was really good news. In fact, in a world where it is just bullies and victims and bystanders, the only hope for peace is actually judgment. This is why when Jesus returns to judge the world, it is good news. He will say to evil and sin and death, this must stop now. He will draw a line in the sand and say this far and no farther. So when we speak of final judgment, it's another way of saying that abuse will end. Racism will end. Self-righteousness and jealousy and lying and violence will end. They will not always be. And this is actually a crucial aspect of restoring shalom. Because judgment is God's way of removing anything that stands against his purposes. One of the the four aspects of shalom. If that leader hadn't stopped those bullies, what do you think the atmosphere of that cabin would have been like? It would have been miserable. It is not peace. That's not shalom. I mean, think about the whole purpose of the trip that we were taking. It was that fun. It was to connect with people. It was to grow. But if he hadn't stopped those bullies, none of that would have happened. In fact, the opposite would have happened. Now, when God removes evil from the world, it's not just about excluding it from the world to come. He's actually going to punish what happened in this world. Look at what it says in verse 8. It says, The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, I, I know that sounds super harsh. But I want you to think about it for a second. I want you to think about how much responsibility God entrusted to humanity. Because the greater your responsibility, the more serious the consequences you receive when you mess up. So if I go on vacation and I ask you to mow my lawn and to water my garden, and you don't do that, and some of my plants die, I'm going to be upset, right? But it's probably not going to be that big of a deal. But let's say I lend you my car and you crash it. Well, I'm not just going to be upset. I'm going to make you pay for that, right? But let's say I entrust you with my children. and You take them to a park and you lose them. Or, or worse than that, you do something to deliberately hurt one of my kids. Well, I'll tell you, the consequences for that are going to be much more severe. God gave human beings his world. And what do we do with it? Look around. How is it going? If God loves the world and God loves people, he cannot turn a blind eye. Sometimes people wonder, how can a loving God judge people? But the real question is this, how can a loving God not judge people? A God who doesn't judge is a God who doesn't care. Now, of course, the the problem here is that we aren't actually just the victims of evil. It's one thing to, to cleanly divide the world into victims and bullies, but the truth is we're both. We're also the perpetrators. Look at the list in that verse, in verse 8. Look at some of the things on here. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the sexually immoral, idolaters, liars. I mean, I can check a few of those off my list. What about you? Let me offer you some hope. Look, Look down at verse 27. It says that in God's new world, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. Okay, so by my calculation, that means the population of heaven is one because Jesus is the only one who clears that bar. But keep reading. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
Now we're going to talk about why Jesus is called the lamb here in just a minute because it's really important. But for now, this is what you need to know. You will not stand a chance on judgment day if you go in thinking, you know, I'm going to be okay because I'm, I'm a decent person. I haven't done that much that's bad. I mean, no, nothing that's a big deal at least. Your only hope is if your name is written in that book, in the book of life. So how does that happen? It happens by not waiting until judgment day to bow your knee to King Jesus. It happens by saying, Jesus, I'm done trying to save myself and run my life. I need you to do those things for me. On my own, I've made a mess of things. I've been running from you. I've been ignoring you long enough. And I need you to rescue me and to be my king. Because here's the truth. You will stand before Jesus on judgment day. That is an experience you will have. And how you do on that day will not depend on your performance. It will depend on your surrender. So the question is, how will you do? For those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, they will get to enjoy the very next thing that happens at the end. The resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. Okay, if you ask most people what the Bible says happens after you die, most people will say, your soul goes to heaven. And they would technically be right. But that's sort of like if someone asked you, where'd you go on vacation? And you said, O'Hare. Like, okay, that's true, but woefully incomplete. That does not tell the whole story. Because the Bible does say, okay, when we die, even though our body goes into the ground, we are present with Jesus spiritually. We are with him in heaven. But it doesn't dwell on that very long. It doesn't actually go into great detail about what that's like because that's not the final destination. Heaven is basically just a layover for where we're really headed. Where we're really headed is resurrection. This is how Paul puts it in Romans. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because, of his, because his spirit lives in you. We will not spend eternity floating around on some distant spiritual dimension. Instead, we will be raised from the dead physically, bodily. If Jesus rose from the dead physically, people saw him, they touched him, he ate food with them, then we will be raised physically. The, the way one theologian put it is, our hope is not life after death. It's life after life after death. And here's what this means. It means in the new creation, we will run and dance and sing. We will eat cheeseburgers and barbecue and guacamole. We will be able to feel the wind in our hair and the the hand on our back. We will hug. We will kiss. I, I mean, Maybe not you and I in particular will kiss, but I mean like, like people in general will kiss other people. I, I, you get the point. We will have bodies and we will use them. We will have whole bodies. We will have healthy bodies, bodies that will not break down or die. Look, look at verse four. It says, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Well, won't that be incredible? I, I, I know many of you are fighting a health battle that you know you will not win. Your body is breaking down. That's true for all of us, whether we realize it or not. There are some of you who have not had a day without significant pain in years, maybe decades, and you are so tired and worn out. I wanna tell you some good news. It will not always be the case. There will come a day when this will be over and God will give you your glorious new body like Jesus is. I want you to think about what this means for those of us who have lost loved ones. Do you have a friend 
or a child or a spouse that that you miss so much and you just can't wait to see. In the resurrection, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. See, this is the point. This is one of the ways that God restores shalom. This is the way he restores his people. God gathers his people from across the ages by bringing them out of their graves and raising them from the dead so they can be together before him. It's really easy, unfortunately, to to lose a sense of wonder about this. You've been around church for a while. You have probably heard this. And maybe this just feels like it goes in one ear and out the other. But one time I was uh, teaching a third grade Sunday school class at my old church. I was a Sunday school teacher. And I was telling them a story about Jesus. And it was a time when Jesus went to a funeral for a young man. And I asked the kids, I said, all right, what's a funeral like? What does it feel like? They said, well, funerals are really sad. I was like, yeah, they are. I said, if you were at a funeral and you saw someone go up to the mom of the person who died and they said to her, stop crying, what would you think? They said, well, that's, that's rude. You're, not, you're allowed to cry at a funeral. I was like, yeah, you're right. And I said, well, what if, what if that person actually went up to the, the body of the person and said to the body, hey, get up. They'd be like, that would be a really mean joke. That's not a nice thing to do. I was like, you're right. But what if you were there and the body actually started to move? What if he actually got up? I was not prepared for this, but the class freaked out. They, were, they just started screaming and cheering and, and yelling. And they're like, oh my goodness. So I got them calmed down. Got them calmed down. I said to them, you are all going to die. Now I realize that is not a normal thing to say to a nine-year-old, uh, but I said it. And that's the reason I am now banned from teaching in kids world. But I told them, I said, you are going to die and everybody is going to die. And it's a really sad thing. But I said to them, what what if I told you that Jesus is going to come back one day and when he's remaking the world, he's actually going to go to your grave and he's going to say to you the same thing he said to that boy. Young man, young woman, get up and rise and you are going to come right up out of your grave. When I said that, again, I was not prepared for this, but it was an explosion even bigger than the first time. They started jumping up and cheering and dancing and yelling. And all of their questions came out of their mouths at the same time. They said, when will this happen? They say, how old will I be? How will I get through all of the dirt? Will there be dinosaurs? It was amazing. They knew, they understood just how incredible it was that death is not the end. The second grade teacher actually came in and she kind of ducked her head in the door to see if everything was okay. I'm pretty sure that by the end of the year, she was sick of teaching next to me. But this is the truth. We cannot forget how crazy, how awe-inspiring, how thrilling it is that in the end, God's people will be raised from the dead, never to die again. Here's the fourth thing that will happen at the end of the story. The renewal of the world. The renewal of the world. Look again at the first verse. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I want you to notice what that says. What's our final destination here? A new heaven and a new earth. This is the fourth aspect of shalom that's restored. God's place. God's place. You remember all of those promises to Abraham that there, his people would have a good land and the promises to the, from the prophets that God would restore his people to their land, all of that. The way God ultimately fulfills that for all of his people is by remaking the world. This passage actually goes on to describe our home as a city descending from heaven to earth, not, not the other way around. It turns out in the end, we don't go up to heaven. Heaven comes down to us. 
It's going to be this world, but it's going to be remade. Verse 5 says this, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. God is going to do for the universe what he is going to do for our bodies. He is going to raise it from the dead. Uh, Later in the passage, in chapter 22, it gives a description of this new world. And as I read it again, I want you to listen and think, where have you heard some of these images before? It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The the tree of life, rivers, no more curse. Where does that language come from? It comes from the very beginning, the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden. You remember how I told you at the beginning, the entire story of the Bible is about how God brings us back to Eden? I didn't make that up. It's right here. The the end of the story is exactly where it began. And this actually addresses one of the most common questions people have about heaven, about what, what the new world is going to be like. A lot of people ask the question, well, we get bored. Because maybe if you think about it, like most of the ways that people think about heaven, like it's it's a little dull, to be honest. Like there are two big ideas of what heaven is like. Some people think that heaven is like an eternal vacation. And other people think it's like a, a perpetual church service. And when you think about both of those, it's like as much as I love church and, you know, right now a vacation sounds really nice. After, you know, a hundred years or so, I think I might get restless. You know, I'm just being honest. Those of you who are fans of the TV show, The Good Place, you know exactly what kind of problems that causes. But the really good news is that is not actually how the Bible describes the new creation. The the new creation is described as a city full of life, bustling with activity. It's full of beauty and culture and things to explore and create and enjoy. Look, Look at what verse 24 says. It says, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. This is a way of saying people from every nation and every culture will share the very best of their culture with each other. The the very best of Korean culture and Mexican culture and Polish culture and every culture in the world. When, When the old world passes away, nothing that is worth saving from it will be lost. It will all be brought in from every culture. And not only will the new creation be full of culture and activity, you will also have a job to do. We will be ruling with Christ. Did you know that? Revelation 5.10 says this, You have made them, and it's talking about God's people, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Makes sense when you think about it. This was humanity's job at the beginning. Like in the garden, Adam and Eve, they were assigned, you're going to be the king and queen of creation. You're supposed to go into the world and make something out of it, right? This is actually what all of our work is meant to be. Us ruling over some portion of the world on God's behalf. And when we get to the new world, God's not going to abandon that. He's actually going to renew it. He's going to say, go and do it. And now do it without sin and evil to get in the way. This is going to be amazing. Forever, you will not be bored because you will be busy. We will be ruling the universe with Jesus. Can you imagine what that will be like? This actually leads to the last thing that will happen. Or maybe I should say, the first thing that will happen at the dawn of the new creation. This is where it's all headed. The rule of the lamb. The rule of the lamb. Look at Revelation 21, starting in verse 3. It says, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will see him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, 
and they will reign forever and ever. Uh, Early in the book of Revelation, there's a story about John, and he's up in the throne room of heaven. He's waiting to kind of get the vision of what's to come. And while he's in the throne room, someone says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turns, thinking that he's going to see this magnificent, glorious, noble, kingly beast. And when he turns to look at the lion, he sees a lamb. It's not just a lamb, it's a, a slaughtered lamb, a bloody and broken lamb. But why is it that throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, the most common title for Jesus is the lamb? Over 30 times it's used to talk about him. It's because Jesus died as a sacrifice to save the world. God could have left us with the mess that we had made in the world. He he could have left us to suffer the death that we had deserved. He, He could have rightly condemned each and every one of us to the lake of fire forever. But instead, God chose to step into the story, to become one of the characters, to become one of us. And so Jesus did what Adam and Israel and David and all of us have failed to do. He was actually the world's true king. And as the world's true king, he took on the world's sin. He took on the price that all of us owed and he paid it. When Jesus died on the cross, that's what he was doing. He was taking our consequences for our actions. His body was broken so that the world could be healed. His blood was shed so that our sin could be forgiven. When Jesus rose from the grave, he rose as the victor over death, never to die again. And now he sits on the throne of the universe and one day every one of his enemies will be vanquished and his rule will be complete and he will reign forever and ever. See, this is the linchpin of Shalom. The king at the heart of the story, the one who holds it all together is the king who died on the cross. I actually think this is the key to understanding the whole story of the Bible and the truth about the world. You've got to know that the hero of the story is the God who suffered to bring Shalom back to his world. The hero of the story is the king who suffered. When you know this, it changes everything. Because it means that the one running the world is actually good. He's actually good. The power behind the universe is full of love and compassion. It means that we can trust him. We we can trust him to be the judge in the end. We can trust him to lead our lives in the present. We can trust him to write our story. When it seems like the world is out of control, And you wonder, why is all of this happening? And you look around and you say, does anybody out there know that we are experiencing this? They know what I'm going through. You can remember this. That the head that is crowned with glory now was once crowned with thorns. That the hands that hold the world are the hands that were pierced with nails. The one who sits on the throne knows what it's like to hang on a cross. And if he would go through that for us, He won't allow anything to come into our life or our world that would ultimately destroy us. But the key to knowing that, of having that assurance, is actually surrendering to him, allowing him to be the hero, not just of the big story, but of your story. We've actually got to get out of our little stories and get into his big story. The the other day, my kids got a book from the library. It's called Goldilocks and the Three Dinosaurs. In the story, these dinosaurs are hungry and they're looking for a snack. They're thinking they want to eat a little girl. So they decide they're going to set a trap for Goldilocks because they know how she is. 
So they uh, cook up some pudding, three bowls of pudding, and they leave it out in their house. And uh, they leave the door, you know, unlocked strategically. And they go and hide outside the house and wait for Goldilocks to just come wandering in as she is wont to do. You know, that's the way she acts. So she comes in and uh, she finds these bowls of pudding. And after she eats one bowl that's too hot and one bowl that's too cold and one bowl that's just right, she's uh, looking for a place to rest. And she walks into the living room. And so she knows how this goes. She looks at the first chair and it turns out the first chair is too big. So she goes to the second chair and it turns out the second chair is too big. And then she goes to the third chair and that chair is too big too. I mean, you realize these are dinosaurs. They don't have small chairs. And, and so she's starting to get a little confused and, and decides, well, she's going to go check in the bedroom and see what the beds are like. And it turns out all of those beds, they're too big as well. And now she's suspicious and she starts looking around and realizing that all of the decor is prehistoric themed. And it dawns on her, she's not in the house of a bear, she's in the house of dinosaurs and she's in danger. So she goes running out the back door as fast as she can and the dinosaurs don't get their dinner. The the moral of the story at the end of the book is this. If you ever find yourself in the wrong story, leave. I think that's a good moral to our entire series. If you ever find yourself in the wrong story, leave. Some of you are living in the wrong story. You you are living in the story of your own ambition, your own agenda, your own purposes. You, You are living in the story that revolves around your money or your career or your safety or your politics. You are living in the story that revolves around your guilt and your shame and your fear. And all of these stories, they revolve around you, which means they are the wrong stories and you need to leave. This is actually one way to think about being a Christ follower. A Christ follower is someone who sees their life as part of the big God story. The story of God bringing shalom back to the world. The story where you are not the hero, but Jesus does for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Wouldn't you rather be part of that story? There are some of you today who have never surrendered your life, life to Christ. And I want to give you a chance to do that right here as we wrap up this series. To take a moment and actually say, God, I want you to be the hero of my story. What we're going to do as we pray is I'm just going to put a simple pattern for prayer on the screen. Just three simple steps there. And we're going to walk through that. And as you do this, it's a way to express your surrender to Jesus. So if you've never done that before, let's do that now. Let's pray. The prayer starts with the word sorry. Sorry. Take a moment right now and confess your sin to God. Tell him what you've done and ask for his forgiveness. Second step is to say thank you. Thank Jesus for dying to pay for your sin, for for rising from the dead to bring you new life. Thank him for what he's done that you couldn't do for yourself. And then say please. Actually ask Jesus to save you, to be the king of your life. to to free you from sin, to welcome you into his family, to give you a future in his kingdom. Say please.
If you need more time to pray, go ahead and pause the video. There's no need to rush this. Take all the time that you need. God, we thank you that you hear these prayers of surrender and that you have promised to save everyone who calls on you. And that's true even today. We pray this in his name. Amen.